This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. I'll say, can we? Today we are beginning the first of our two-part creature feature, which explores how climate change is impacting Australian wildlife. As we know, Australia is populated with some of the most iconic of the world and creatures. They're on our national crest, our coins. They play the roles of creators in Indigenous Dreamtime stories and were the objects of fascination and curiosity by Europeans when they arrived. Yet we are not making things easy for these critters. They are feeling the heat when the temperatures rise in summer. Their habitats are being destroyed due to excessive land clearing. The frequency of fires and droughts are increasing too. This is an issue that is just not getting enough attention on, main, on the mainstream media. In our first part, we will speak to some of the leading experts about how these creatures are suffering as a result of man-made climate change. Now, Vivian, who are you going to be talking to? Well, thanks, Kurt. I really enjoyed preparing this. It's, there's a great amount of research being done in Australia, and one of our guests is going to be Professor David Lindenmeyer from the ANU, and he just he's a wonderful public intellectual. He turns up at sustainable living festivals. He's on the side of the Great National Great Forest National Park and marsupials, and he knows a lot, and he's written wonderful books. And I'm also going to talk to uh, Dr. Christine Hoskins about koalas. And apparently koalas are in a very unique position because um, there's only about 10 animals or 10 species that are specifically knocked out by climate change because their food source won't be sustained in the um, future. So Christine Hoskins will talk to us and I think the listeners are going to really enjoy this but don't go down into the depths too much listeners because next week or the following week, the 17th we're going to come up with the solutions we're going to talk to some of the people who are actually doing really big um, projects to um, give a lifeline to some of the species that really need not go extinct quite yet anyway. Great, thank you Vivian. Um, first up, we very quickly we want to um, play uh, the oh, call yeah. of this uh, pipistrel bat. Uh, can you can you explain why that's yeah, important? Yeah, I was at a conference and this lady who was part of I think zoos, the zoos Australia, and she had this little the last known cry of the pipistrel bat, which died out on Christmas Island. And um, Professor Linda Marr will talk about it, but it's, it's quite poignant and it's just the sound of extinction. And so this really sad moment, and, and I carry around the recording of the last bat on the last night, which is the sound I'm going to play now. was a little pipistrel bat. Where was it? <laughs> Christmas Island pipistrel. So on Christmas Island. Great. Um, yeah, I understand that at, at one point in time the, the, the skies were full of that sound over and over again. Mm. Um, so right now we are going to uh, be talking to Dr. Ann Fowler who has worked on the front line with wildlife all down the east coast of Australia and produced numerous papers which detail the plight of Australian fauna. Um, so uh, she has uh, she's produced many veterinary guides and papers with titles like 
uh, looking at bird poo to the current impact of climate change on Australian wildlife. And today she will give us an overview on the plight of Australian wildlife and detail exactly how climate change is impacting these Australian creatures that we hold so dear. So hello, hello, Dr. Fowler. Hello, how are you doing? Very well. Um, so I'd, I'd love for you just at the beginning to explain uh, the different ways in which a change in climate um, from us, so from humans, uh, affects the di- different Australian species. For sure, and I think one of the important things to understand is that climate change is one of these multifaceted problems that is impacting in so many different ways. So one of the ways that we're seeing, and the lovely thing is the federal government has listed climate change as a threatening process, but what's very interesting is literally a half a dozen of the other threatening processes are the consequences of climate change as well. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, one of the things that we think will be happening is that we know that the climatic events that occur, such as periods of heat, our droughts, our fires, are all going to become more extreme. And this has an amazing impact on animals. We talk about the, the direct impact, so the animal gets burnt. That's what you see on the television, you know, in, in the second week of January. But a little bit more insidiously as that habitat is changed. And a great example of that would be the Grampians fires um, mm-hmm. now about a decade ago because that fire burned with such an intensity that it destroyed the seed bank. So the Grampians of today is not the Grampians of our parents' time and it can never return to that. And we're going to see more fires like that that change um, the um, that, that sort of um, ecosystem. We've got other, um, you know, really as you talk about charismatic animals, the fact that mm-hmm. with increasing heat, we're actually going to lose those magic places in Australia that we think of as the islands in the sky. There's places on the Great Dividing Range which still have snow, for example, so we're talking about yeah. places, Bogong, False Creek and the like, and we're seeing that... In those sorts of places, we're already seeing a contraction in the range of mountain pygmy possums. We're seeing drying up of the little swampy areas where the corroboree frogs live. So we've got those sorts of changes happening. And, of course, we know that although we've got a very drought-adapted um, lo- um, lifestyle for many of our arid species, you still need some water to actually get and do your um, get in and have a reproductive effect. We're also really seeing as well as that little patchy sort of loss of connectivity. So we recognise that habitat fragmentation is a very serious mm-hmm. process that threatens many species. And this is something that's insidious in so many ways. Maybe land use changes because there's not enough water or it's no longer economical to farm that there goes underneath subdivision and another critter loses another way of that bridge from one place to another place. Possibly one that I think that's actually been studied now for the longest period of time, right back as far as the 1960s, is that as we get into climate change, we actually lose something that is called synchrony. So, so many, particularly our seabirds, literally land in Australia at a particular point in time when the food is meant to be there. And they have these incredibly narrow windows to raise young, often as short as four to six weeks, because they, before they literally have to turn around and fly back up into the northern hemisphere. What climate change will actually do, and we have seen this already around some of the seabirds, such as the short-tailed shearwaters, where they're meant to have arrived, but warmer currents, warmer weather, has actually 
actually push their food further away or cause it not to arrive. And we've seen increase in deaths around a number of shorebird species associated with that particular loss. Yeah, and you really get a sense of the complexity of this situation where you can't just remove one specific creature and then everything remains the same. There's this kind of... uh, What I got from reading your paper was that there's this incredibly intricate codependence between fauna and flora and that we are... by At the risk of losing one particular species, that there's a there's potential for the for the ecosystem as a whole to 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 change or potentially even collapse yeah and i think maybe i'm trying to think of the name of this game but you know the game where you've got this pile of like um, wooden straws and you can start to pull one out mm-hmm. and it's only when you hit the critical number that you've yep. pulled out before the thing falls jenga that is the climate change debacle we're in at the moment where people like Tim Flannery have made the call for action more than 10 years ago and unfortunately our leaders are not helping us in sufficient time. And at the end of the day, climate change is not new, but it normally takes a very long period of time and this man-made climate change or man-influenced climate change, which is speeding it up, means that these animals don't have time to adapt and evolve as they have done in through millennia before. And that's where it's just literally, it's like a train heading out of control. Mm -hmm. It's just getting faster and faster and it's going to head off the tracks. And it is really complex. It's about so many little changes. Um, Maybe the other analogy is the lobster in the boiling pot of water. Our water is boiling. We just aren't quite aware of how hot it is at the moment. Yeah, and I think that the Jenga Tower especially is a really apt metaphor because it looks like it's just as stable and just as complete until the moment that it starts to to teeter and fall down. Um, Yeah, and so and also there's... this is not something that's kind of ha- going to happen in ten or 20, uh, twenty or thirty years, is it? We're we're kind of seeing effects of this right now, and you've you've witnessed some of those firsthand. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, I mean, I, one of the changes, and certainly for you know for Victorian-based um, um, listeners, perhaps that I know I've seen when I was in Victoria mm-hmm. was the migration of something called, for instance, the, a, a, a species, the black flying fox. That's a tropical species. If people have been to Darwin out towards, uh, like at Litchfield, they will have seen animals like this. If they've been to Darwin themselves, if they've been to Cairns, they will have seen black flying foxes. Yep. They're not meant to have come to Victoria. 20 years ago when I first worked in Victoria, they weren't there. Mm-hmm. Five years ago, they were. And then they started moving to Bendigo. So here is a species that, that we end up seeing, I see as a veterinarian, because it gets into a little bit of trouble, trapped on a wire, you know, um, you know, caught in fruit tree netting. Why is this tropical species moving down the coast? And it, and it is a consequence of climate change. We've seen this incredible change in where this, um, you know, very important forest pollinator is actually starting to move. For me as a veterinarian, yes, I see these animals starting to present, you know, um, a couple of years ago with this, with this sort of crash around the food resources that we saw with the short-tailed shearwatering in um, Victoria, we ended up seeing this second peak of death, which was not something we'd seen before. And so we're literally having hundreds of animals come into the clinic that were just simply starving uh-huh. because quite literally their food wasn't there when they had thought it was meant to be there and you can't really change your behavior of many years you just arrive and you just hope 
and yeah. we're failing them. We're failing these guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if so, if I was a person that lived in the centre of Sydney or the centre of Melbourne, and I had minimal contact with uh, you know Australian wildlife outside the city bounds, um, can you explain how? this disruption in the surrounding ecosystems will eventually kind of uh, affect me personally as someone that lives in the city. They're not immune. I I think that's so true, isn't it? I mean, these animals are essentially our canary in the mine shaft. They're telling us Mm -hmm. that we're in trouble. And you're right, for a city-based person, it is a bit hard to to understand, isn't it, that Mm. these things are bad. But let's go back and choose the flying fox as a really great example. You know what? Someone in the city wants to have wooden timber frames to build a house. Yep. If those trees aren't pollinated, they don't grow. Yep. We're heading to a crisis in Australian trees within my lifetime because the pollinators have disappeared. For those who love their coffee, well, guess who pollinates coffee crops? Mm. The flying fox. We start, for instance, to lose this animal or lose its distribution due to climate change, and we're seeing its loss, for instance, in tropical areas mm. where your coffee comes from. That's going to be a big issue. That flying fox actually, uh, actually pollinates tropical fruits. So as you sit here today and I've just had, you know, a lovely bit of jackfruit and um, some dragon fruits mm-hmm. and other fruits like that, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get that. Um, those, if those trees are actually not pollinated anymore, then so many of the things that land on our table each day are going to disappear. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a similar story even with our microbats as we start to lose our trees as their habitat actually contracts because they no longer have um, the repairing environment. Maybe it becomes too arid, you know, because the water hasn't been managed. We're actually going to lose crops as basic as, as wheat and oat. Can you imagine yeah, a life where well. we didn't have bread? <laughs> and that's where we're heading. Yeah, I mean... And yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's... We get, I get a sense from reading the work that you've done that there it is this incredibly complex um, interdependency, and and that you know we are beginning to get to get into a situation where no no one's immune. So I guess if people are listening to this now, aside from curbing the amount of fossil fuel use that they're doing, what what steps? Can people take on the land, uh, take to, to, I, I to help these animals? Yeah, I think there's so many simple steps because really this is about being respectful of the world that we live in. Uh, the first thing you do is how about reduce your water use? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's been such an issue in Melbourne. We've seen such great um, campaigns around controlling water use because if we can maintain our water tables, if we can maintain water in our rivers, then we maintain our systems' health. Um, I'm a big fan of when I worked at um, Hillsville Zoo, they did this wonderful campaign called White for Wildlife. The fact that every year um, the average family of four is responsible for the death directly Mm. of something like 32 animals that rely on eucalypt timber trees for life because we actually use 300-year-old trees to wipe our butts. (laughs) Well, recycle. Because unfortunately that 300-year-old tree not just being a home for those 32 animals, a couple of possums, a koala, a whole bunch of desiurids, that's our carbon sink. Yeah. We are literally wiping our carbon sink with our butt. Mm-hmm. That's insane. Yep. That is absolutely insane. We need to be recycling paper. We need to be looking for ways that we can investigate, um, use, invest in renewable energy. Let's 
just let the people do the talking to the governments because they don't seem to think that renewable energy is something that can work, whereas I think we can make it work. I think it's as simple as, can you plant a tree? Can you actually plant some habitat back? Our wildlife is so resilient. If you build it, it will come. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that in my own um, backyard in the last three years when we decided that each time we jumped on a plane, we would plant a tree at home. It's looking a bit dense, I have to say. But you know what? My boyfriend stood out there the other day and said, "You, you know we've got three new species this year. Because we've actually created a home for our Australian wildlife. So plant natives, don't plant deciduous. There's so many things I think that we can do. And I think we've also got a voice. We can also start lobbying government Mm. to um, put a value on biodiversity. And that was a really great thing last week that um, finally the Great Barrier Reef was given a value, an economic value, by the Deletoit um, group and that's going to help yep. let's ensure that we're giving the government a clear message about renewable energy let's make sure that we're also making very very clear recommendations around land clearing in this country why are we removing our trees which are our carbon sinks and unfortunately land clearing in both Queensland and New South Wales has sped up with the relaxation of laws I was just reading today that the changes that are happening in, in so many parts of our country that are going to directly reduce the amount of viable land and the connectivity for birds, to, for instance, to be able to survive. And they're the ones with wings who can move. Yeah. The lizard doesn't get that freedom. Yeah. yeah. The koala doesn't get that freedom. Yeah. That's, there, there's some really, really great points and some really great concrete uh, ways that people can act. And I, I love the emphasis that you put on... Um, you know, giving back to nature and understanding that it's something out there and you can positively influence it. It's not uh, it's not just putting a solar panel on your roof, but it's also understanding that nature can heal itself and by planting a tree. So thank thank you so much for that interview, um, Dr. Dr. Ann Fowler. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Feeling shortchanged by all the doom and gloom of climate change and want to help? Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. At BZE, we have a blueprint to help Australia become a thriving zero emissions economy, but we are dependent on public donations, so we need your help. To donate or find out more information, head to bze.org.au. That's bze.org.au. Our next guest is Dr. Christine Adams-Hoskin from the University of Queensland. She's a postdoctoral research fellow and has looked into the impact of climate change on koalas. So in this special show, we are going to take the side of the koalas with Christine's help. Welcome, Christine. Tell us how you got involved with koalas. Hello. Thanks for having me on your show. Uh, well, I got involved um, about 15 years ago um, studying ecology and landscape ecology and got interested in the effects of climate change um, on all sorts of wildlife and then the opportunity arose to uh, study koalas uh, in particular from a PhD uh, and uh, from there it went on to looking at how they'd be affected by climate change 
and how their food resources would also be affected by climate change. So looking at some of the eucalypt um, tree species that they also need to eat. Yeah, well, look, in the last drought with, I think, about 80% of their natural habitat was destroyed, koalas started being seen trying to climb into suburban swimming pools and they were li- I've seen videos of them lying flat out at the base of a tree, unable to climb up anymore, and it was a pathetic sight. And I wonder what will happen to them as heat waves become more severe. Yes, well, it's not good. Some of the research has already shown that um, there are some pretty dramatic declines, particularly in the western edges of the koalas' range in Queensland and New South Wales, where these prolonged um, droughts and heat waves are occurring. Uh, and basically, um, the modelling I did on the the climate envelope for the koala showed that they really um, their maximum temperature is around thirty seven point seven degrees. So of course, and that's looking at all the historical records of koalas and where they used to occur. But of course, now particularly inland, we're getting you know ten days of well over forty degrees in a row. So they simply can't cope with that sort of heat um, and just can't thermoregulate but of course their food trees are also affected um, and the leaves lose their moisture content which of course is what normally where the koalas get their moisture from so the trees dehydrate the koalas dehydrate that's a really bad situation and we do get just mass um, you know mass deaths of koalas during these these events oh well i read in one of your articles that there was a senate report called the koala saving our national icon and i wondered does this mean that governments will now put a stop to land clearing and order corridors mm-hmm. of the sort of gum trees that they like to be to eat to be planted the length and breadth of australia it would be nice. There was a Senate inquiry back in 2012 and I, amongst um, other researchers, participated in that and we did advise the federal government on um, all the various threats to koalas, uh, land clearing, climate change and so on and that did lead to the listing of the koala under the EPBC Act, which of course is the highest level of protection that a species can have in Australia under Commonwealth legislation. And the koala did get listed as vulnerable under that EPBC Act in New South Wales and Queensland in the ACT. And we were terribly excited and thought this will really lead to on-ground outcomes. But sadly, at this point, there is no evidence of that. Um, The protection is there, but the actions on the ground aren't changing. Um, so that's a, a bit of a shame. Well, you know, we're trying to do this program from the point of view of the animals. I mean, I don't think a koala, you know, imagine them talking to themselves. That we're listed on the EPBC. That's great. <laughs> no. <laughs> but um, I know, look, they're already undermined by disease. We hear a lot about the diseases that, that are, you know, decimating their colonies. They're also savaged by dogs, killed by cars. Suburb, sub, suburban spread is sort of taking away a lot of the habitat but I think climate change must be the last straw and I'd like to know would it make any difference if they were declared a threatened species does that you know label bring in the fire brigade uh, more than listed as vulnerable yep well um they're sort of considered threatened with a listing under that Commonwealth legislation as vulnerable. That does suggest that they're very threatened because to even be listed on the EPBC Act means that 
um, there have been significant declines in their populations over three generations of koalas. So that's already pretty concrete evidence and a pretty strong listing. Um, I think, I don't think, I think more the issue is how that translates to, uh, local government, state government in terms of, you know, doing something about land clearing. And that's what we're not seeing at the moment. So there's sort of three tiers of government and they all do different things, but they don't work together. And I think one of the things I would really like to see is that, you know, before anything was done at a local or state government level, um, you know, this EPBC listing had to be looked at first and sort of overrode anything yeah. else. But that's not happening. They're sort of all acting independently. And I think that's what's undermining this federal listing for the koala. You know, it doesn't doesn't really change what state or local governments do. They've got their own, you know, rules and regulations and bylaws. Mm. And so um, the land clearing does continue, unfortunately. Well, look, we talked to the director of a film called Cultivating Murder a few weeks back and it showed the illegal land clearing on someone's property up in northern New South Wales and right next door another farmer had established a koala sanctuary so I believe, you know, that whole area would have been koala-suitable land. And... Yet the fines for the illegal clearing were not very significant and the farmer was only put into prison when he actually murdered a forestry compliance officer. And the film is really very moving because it just shows you this small elite of very wealthy, big big agribusiness people who who think they can change the law, really, I think. And and like you could see in the film, this other farmer who had the the koala sanctuary, she was doing the right thing. She, you know, she had a very well-balanced set up there on her property. She was, you know, was a viable farm, but she also had room for a koala colony. And it sounds as if, like, it's not a criminal act to destroy a koala colony. I can't really understand that. Why wouldn't it be a crime to, to push a a species to the brink like this and why isn't a a farmer like the one who puts a sanctuary why isn't she rewarded by society I think something has to change in this um, deal yes I I think for me the problem is that um, the economy is still way way ahead of the environment and I think those dots haven't haven't been joined by our our politicians yet and our decision makers so they don't really get that a healthy environment actually is underpinning human health so um, in the things that cause you know as we all know the usual factors for economic growth don't really allow for the environment and that's the difference so until the environment is put up on the same level as economic development um, then it's this is what's going to happen there aren't there isn't going to be that sort of enforcement or punishment because people think well because but economic growth's got to come first so that's that and if we mm-hmm. sacrifice koalas too bad we, because the economy's got to come first and mm-hmm. to me until there's that paradigm shift um, we're not going to get uh, any good outcomes for koalas or other wildlife or all the other species of course that also share koala habitat a lot of other native animals that disappear as well when that habitat goes well that's right I was thinking there's a lot of very insignificant little animals and even animals that haven't been named yet or species that haven't really been properly discovered yet that are mm-hmm. in these ecosystems and the koala's the icon you know it's the the tourist draw card it's the uh, you know it's the poster boy for australia and um if we can't save that and its habitat then i think the others haven't got much chance as climate no, change makes everything worse you know Yes, well, climate change will is just sitting over the top now. So I sort of call it the east-west divide. So um, if you look at a koala range 
on the east coast of Australia, particularly in Queensland and New South Wales. Um, you've got you've sort of got the eastern coastal strip, which is developing at such a rapid rate, and, it, and is you know the, the cause of so much of that land clearing. But of course, development and people need to live somewhere, so you can understand the difficulty for local and state governments. Where do they put people? And everyone wants to live on the coast, um, which is also, of course, the best habitat for koalas often because climatically it's cooler and it's wetter. The soil's often better there, so the leaf quality is better. So we've got them, you know, um, disappearing from the coast. And then we go west, where you'd think, well, at least we could hold on to the western koalas. But, of course, that's where, um, well, the land clearing is still occurring. But also, you know, the the big factor of climate change, which is really, uh, in the Mulga lands a couple of years ago, a study found they'd declined by 80% yeah. over a decade um, due to drought and climate change. In New South Wales, there are some similar studies. So, um, so now they're getting hit in the east and in the west. So you, you wonder what's left for them. Well, while we've still got koalas, tell us a little bit about their habits because I believe that they are very fussy about what they eat. They only have a certain type of uh, gum leaf that they like and it's nutritious and it gives them water. But climate change is reducing the nutrition of those type of eucalyptus leaves as it proceeds. And I wonder, could you explain how that works and explain if it's the same for koalas in the south, maybe in Tasmania or in Victoria, would they be still suffering that effect on the leaves? Mm. So um, two things with the, the leaf chemistry. The increasing, increasing CO2 does tend to cause trees to grow more rapidly, but there um, there is evidence to suggest that it might be affecting the nutrient quality with that rapid growth. So they might not be getting, you know, as many of the good things out of the leaves and the good nutrients such as nitrogen that they used to have. There's a lot of ongoing research on that at the moment. Um, and then, of course, the other factor is the actual moisture in the leaf that obviously is as the leaves dry out. And we're actually getting dieback of eucalypt trees where forests are actually, um, you know, just dying um, because of the because of climate change. So not only is the leaf quality declining in terms of moisture and, and nu- nutrition, but in some cases the eucalypts are just dying outright as well because of those harsh climatic conditions. Um, Further south, um, it's a very, very different situation. You mentioned Tasmania. There aren't any koalas in Tasmania. Um, don't know if there ever were. Um, in Victoria, um, they've sort of got a different suite of problems, um, but climate change will be affecting them in certain regions as well where um, there are droughts and heat waves. But there are other problems for koalas down there. There's plenty of good leaf, but they tend to be getting translocated from island populations where they've been rescued after the cullings that didn't stop until the 1930s um, when they were killed in the hundreds of thousands and exported for their fur. Um, So they became virtually extinct in Victoria and South Australia um, because of that hunting. Um, And so a few of them are rescued, put on an island, Kangaroo Island and a couple of other islands, and their populations have really... um, it really expanded. They've done well. They've got good food trees down there. But of course, being an island, they overcrowded, they overpopulated in the end and start to starve because they eat all the available leaf. So those koalas are now being put back on the mainland um, into little, but again, because of habitat fragmentation, they're sort of still being put on islands. It's just that they're islands in a sea of farming or urbanisation yeah. instead of islands in a sea of ocean. So they've got the same same problems. They're, they're eating too much. They try and move out to find more food and then they just come across roads or cleared land. Um, 
So, so there are a lot of other problems as well in South, um, South Australia and Victoria um, mm. over and above climate change at the moment. Well, that's really interesting. But just we've got about two more minutes, um, Christine. Mm-hmm. I wonder, could you just tell us, in a nutshell, what you would see as a proactive approach to koala conservation? I mean, linking up those forests, I think, sounds like one. Um, but what, what, what is your, um, what's the best chance for preserving them? The best chance for preserving koalas is definitely to have a stronger listing for koalas so that so that there is compliance and enforcement when it comes to land clearing. And land clearing is still the overriding threat. We have the disease and all those other impacts, but a lot of them are indirect effects from land clearing, you know, such as roads and dogs and and um, stress perhaps exacerbating disease. Um, so it's really back to the land clearing. And until we get a stronger protection on koalas at a, at a level that perhaps melds all levels of government so that um, that land clearing can be reined in, um, you know, in koala habitat, um, that's what that's what I see happening to save them. We've, we've just got to stop clearing their habitat. Fantastic. That's that's the message I want to hear because that's in the Beyond Zero land use plan. We really want to stop land clearing also because that will sequester carbon. You know, that's a big climate yeah, oh, action. Absolutely. And so if we can sequester carbon and then the koalas can um, persevere and, and perhaps relocate to where it's cooler, they've got a, you know, a chance before we hit that um, recovery path to a safer climate, which we're hoping that uh, eventually we will, perhaps by the end of the century. I've been speaking to Professor mm. Lyndon Meyer, he's going to talk next, and um, he, he was trying to vision that recovery path where we put in place things at least to save these animals while we can. So thank you so much for talking to us. That was very, very interesting. It was a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. So that was Dr. Christine Adams-Hoskins from Queensland University. Now we'll have a little break and we'll come back for Professor David Lindenmeyer. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Here it is again, 3CR Community Radio, the Concrete Gang. We've got our annual pull-up down at the uh, on July the 10th on the RDO for construction workers down at the Palace Hotel, City Road, South Melbourne at 11am. $20 tickets at the door, which entitles you a great food there. The Palace put on a great food. Also bring some extra, extra lovely, a few extra chickens in your pocket for the raffle tickets. $10 raffle ticket gives you a chance to win a string bean. It's a $5,000 travel voucher and a $500 booze voucher up for grabs. And live music from the Jaded Cats. Yes, be there or be square to uh, South Melbourne, July the 10th on the RDO, 11am, City Road, South Melbourne for the award-winning Concrete Gang. Professor David Lindenmeyer is a great warrior for conservation biology. He's at the Fenner School of Environment and Society at ANU and the Threatened Species Hub. I heard him first speak at the Sustainable Living Festival about the Great Forest National Park and all the marsupials living in there, and I felt that the park was almost a reality the way he described it. But tonight's Climate Action Show is from the perspective of all those creatures that we call biodiversity. Now, I don't like abstractions, so I'm going to ask David to tell us about specific animals that are even now changing where they live or dying out because of climate change. So welcome, David. How are you? 
Thank you. Thanks for having me on your program. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Your recent article in the autumn edition of Wildlife Australia was based on the appalling rate of species extinction in this country and the fact that we face each one with silence as, as if nothing could have been done or as if no one was really responsible. So could you tell us about your coronial inquest into the extinction of the Christmas Island pipistrelle, whose call we heard at the top of this program? Oh, gosh, it's, that's one of the saddest I've ever written. Um, but basically what has happened with the Christmas Island pipistrelle was that that animal was monitored to extinction. So what happened was that uh, in the 1990s, it was became quite clear that populations of that species were declining. And essentially what happened was that ecologists continued to watch as this animal was monitored but continued to decline and there was no sensible policy or management interventions to try to prevent that extinction. And it went extinct. And now that's the case with, with a number of other species as well. For example, the Bramble K. melamies, which is one of Australia's most recent extinctions it's a small rodent lived once lived on an island in queensland bramble k a very small population but very vulnerable to uh, storms and and cyclones in that area and it went extinct so again what happened was that there was no attention to the potential risks that that animal faced the risk actually was real in the end the island was was whacked by uh, a major storm surge, was inundated, the animal was lost, and we'll never see it again. And so both cases are examples of species that should have persisted today, but don't, in large part because of poor management. Yeah. And a lack of, a lack of intervention. You know, in a place like Australia, we've already lead the world in mammal extinctions. You know, 10% of this country's mammal fauna is lost. And when we think about that relative to other parts of the world like North America where there's one species that has been lost, now we're in the 30s compared to them. This is just appalling. And the fact that we don't intervene when we need to and early enough I think is just outrageous. Yeah, well, I was taken by your idea in that article. It's a sort of imaginary idea that you would have a coronial inquest into no, an actual, not just a few animals dying out, but an actual species becoming extinct. That should create a furor. And just as we've had those towers in London, the tower block that burned, all that's so sad and so awful. And, of course, now everything is being mobilised, you know, in the way of council um, building inspections and so on, and uh, they will change that. There will be reforms put in place, and I think that's what you were feeling. We can't just sit with our ha on our hands while these things are happening. Is that, at what level does this happen? Why are people so helpless? Well, I think this, happened, this needs to happen at several levels. The first, the first level is that we continue to make poor decisions about how we manage landscapes, how we manage populations of species, all sorts of things. Now, even today, the Victorian government has decided that it's going to continue to bankroll a largely uneconomic industry in the Central Highlands area of Victoria and these wet forests. It makes almost no money for the state of Victoria. It leads to significant changes in the forest, which is now not only threatening, like Leadbeater's possum, but others like the Greater Glider. And 
So essentially we see the processes continuing to threaten species ongoing and very little attempt to do very much about it, except often right at the last minute in a crisis management stage, which is very expensive, very often unsuccessful. Mm. But essentially we have teams of public servants in places like Victoria and elsewhere and at the federal level basically uh, rubbing their hands, wringing their hands, um, continuing to make the same poor decisions year after year after year. And the consequence of this is that Australia continues to lose biodiversity, continue to go extinct, and we keep making poor decisions. Yeah, well, so far these uh, extinctions you might put down to land clearing or, you know, urbanisation or all sorts of other reasons, but climate change is going to be the last straw for animals, isn't it? It adds another layer of intensity. I was thinking of um, alpine species like the mountain pygmy, pygmy possum or uh, corroboree frogs. You see them at Taronga Zoo in a kind of um, humidity crib situation where they're being preserved, the, the corroboree frog, but I think there will be nowhere else to go when the snowfall um, well, decreases in the Alps. Usually what happens is that most species go extinct as a combination of factors, not just one. No. So usually things interact or there are cumulative effects. And the corroboree frog is actually a really good example. So for your listeners, it's, it's one of Australia's most truly spectacular native animals. This is extraordinary golden black coloured tiny little frog uh, that lives only in alpine areas. And the really big issue there with with its demise, it's actually a disease. It's called chytrus fungus, and it was brought into Australia. Um, we're not sure why, how or why, probably through the pet trade, the exotic pet trade. Uh, the, the fungus has infected animals, kills most species. And the really big problem with chytrid fungus is that it's a disease that needs cold, wet conditions to preside. And I'm very concerned about what will happen with this species as the climate changes, its habitat declines, and the passage of these diseases moves further around these environments. So this is not unusual kinds of interacting factors. So sometimes it'll be higher temperatures mixed together with lower rainfall, mixed together with increased amounts of fire, uh, as an example, which which will create problems for a whole range of species. We talked about the greater glider before. The greater glider is an animal that's very sensitive to fire, very sensitive to logging, very sensitive to high temperatures, and very sensitive to habitat fragmentation. So all of these factors interact to create additional stresses for these kinds of species, which uh, uh, over time, their interaction and cumulative impacts makes it impossible for some of these populations to persist. And that's exactly what was greater glider. Yep. It was once common and widespread, and it's now listed as vulnerable, and we can only see which way it's going to go. It's going to become even more threatened as time goes on. I think a lot of listeners may be th thinking about this, and they don't, it doesn't really impact on their life. And one thing that people do understand is when you say the word ecosystem services. Now, that's another abstraction. I'd like you to tell us what is meant by that? What comes to your mind and how might those services to us uh, alter as, for example, spring comes a bit earlier or well, summers are warmer? Yeah, so the concept of ecosystem services, these are the services that, that are um, created by ecosystems or generated by ecosystems that are of use to humans. 
So for, for people in Melbourne that are listening, one of the most important ecosystem services comes from the forests outside of the city. Those forests produce almost all of the drinking water on which nearly 5 million people depend. And so the forests are, the forests are producing water, and the older the forest, the more water that's produced. And so that's a, that's a service to the human community of the city of Melbourne, soon to be the largest city in the country, that's provided by ecosystems that are really important for the quality of life. And in this case, life does not exist without water, including human life. So that ecosystem service is absolutely critical, and it's much cheaper if it's, present, if it's produced from large areas of intact forests. And that's what's important. Those intact forests are not just important habitats for animals like Leadbeater's possum and the greater glider. They actually produce almost all of the city's water supply. And they're also very important for purifying the air that people that, uh, in Melbourne want to breathe. So these are really important ecosystem services for the average person walking down Collins Street or up Burke Street or mm. living in Bandora or elsewhere. They won't necessarily notice those things until they're not there until the air isn't clean, until the water isn't drinkable, uh, those kinds of issues. Mm. So that's the problem with the ecosystem service concept is that often people don't know what they're missing and it's a bit like the old Joni Mitchell song. I think also they don't know what role the animals play in it. That's true. So most people would be unaware that many of the, fo- many of the foods uh, I say that they use, whether or not it's the the, uh, the apples that they eat or the canola that, that they spread on their their um, on their bread in the mornings. A lot of those crops are actually pollinated by animals. Pollinators are really important in these systems and so animals play a very important role in linking these systems together and keeping them productive. So if we want sustainable ecosystems that continue to produce these services, then we have to look, up, look after not only the ecosystems, but the animals that make those, make those ecosystems run as well. Right. Well, next week we're going to talk about solutions, but today we're going to stick with the problem. And one of the main things, the Beyond Zero Emissions research found in the land sector as far as climate emissions was through tree cutting, you know, felling, logging and, and land clearing for agriculture. And the laws are getting much weaker in New South Wales and Queensland and there have been huge protests up there, and I've um, interviewed them over the years, different ones. I always remember one from the Laird Forest, and those people were up there, I think, for about 18 months camping in the forest, and one of them told me on radio how he'd come to love the squirrel gliders and koalas that he'd noticed for the first time by just being camped in the forest, and many creatures then were eventually slaughtered, and the police were brought in to clear the forest, and the Whitehaven coal mine went ahead. In other countries, it's even worse. Anti-logging campaigners are murdered. So why do you think the laws that, that protect biodiversity, which is part of that, that would stop logging the biodiversity, why are they so ineffective? Uh, okay, so, so really this is about power. This is about economic power. And so people are actually quite uh, disempowered in this process because the power is actually concentrated amongst a small level of industrialists who have the wherewithal to be able to log in a place like Canberra. Well, we're speaking to Professor uh, David Lindenmeyer, and um, David, I have one more question for you. 
One of your yes. great contributions was in a book I read in the library. I was, I was researching this, and there's this marvellous book called Australia's Biodiversity and Climate Change. And I advise the readers, the listeners, to you know get this into their local library. It's a marvellous, it's a real textbook presented by Will Stephan and David Lindenmeyer and others. It's a treasure trove. But David, you wrote in that, I drilled down, I'm always clutching at straws and looking for some hope, and I found a thrilling sentence in that book. You were looking at these IPCC graphs of you know what's going to happen, and one of them is labelled runaway climate change, and the other uh, line on the graph is, is labelled recovery. And you said, and I'll quote, by 2001, the climate will begin to return towards conditions that mountain ash trees can tolerate. And I thought, oh, you, here's the first scientist I've come across who is really thinking about what it might be like if we got onto that recovery pathway, if we got off the runaway climate change, which is so terrifying. Can you talk to that, expand on that, what it would look like if we got onto the recovery path and what we should be doing now in the next 80 years to ensure that... Survival saves some of the snakes and animals that are trying to live in the forest. The reality is that the world needs to be decarbonising its economy, and very quickly, far more quickly than is presently the case. And I think I'd also offer hope for the world's population to be able to move to an alternative set of fuels to uh, and energy to be able to run, run society. And I do have some hope that some and environments will be more resilient than some people think. But we have to take the, the notion of changing things quite quickly very seriously because Australia and the rest of the world really has to tackle the, the decarbonisation process and, and very quickly. But it offers massive opportunities. You know, I spent about four weeks in Germany and France and places like Germany are covered in solar panels and at any one time up to half of the power run that country comes from renewables and so there are enormous industries that have been built up around the supply of, of solar panels and you know these are very employment intensive industries so providing enormous opportunity for people going forward so this is really an opportunity not an impediment and we haven't got our politicians to the, to the stage yet of recognizing that this is an opportunity and we need to take it and take it very quickly we run to turn this this around. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I, I just think that talking about the recovery path, how we might get there, you know, doing the decarbonisation but putting in place what we need to, I think that that's really wonderful. That's something that science can really give us, give us the nuts and bolts of how, how to get there. So thank you for talking to us today, David, and um, good luck with your work. Thank you. Thanks for your time. So that was the last call of the Christmas Island Pipistrelle. And I've enjoyed this program, listeners. I hope you have. And I hope you listen again on the 17th of July for the, the follow-up, which will be the, the solutions, where we'll talk to people who are doing massive things in the right direction. So I'd like to thank our guests tonight, Anne Fowler, Christine Adams-Hoskins and David Lindenmeyer. Also the team, Kurt, Andy, Jody, Teddy and Roger, and especially to Kurt who had the idea for this and who did most of the research behind it. So that was really great choice of guests and, and good work there. 
Um, I'd also like to say some more thanks to the Radiothon people. I wasn't in Melbourne and I was listening up in Sydney and I heard the names, but we've had more people adding their name to the list and we've, um, we're very, very grateful to you. So thank you also to, um, now let's, here's the latest list, um, Joseph, Kathy Oakey, Vanessa Petrie, Petros Rosakias, Fleur Rubens, Jane Rudman, Peter Sainsbury, Susan Sharp, Vicky Sharp, Bob Sharples and Jenny Skews, John Stevenson, Miwa Tomanaga, Judy Ebner, and I think we're going to have, Miwa's having a, a raffle tonight, and we're hoping to make a bit more money for the Radiothon. And we're really, really pleased that we've made our target, and thanks very, very much to all of you who did um, send in some money. And uh, Fiona Armstrong, I think we didn't read in the first lot, but she, she sent in a very generous donation. Also Anthony Daniele and Barbara Dutton. I think I've covered everybody, but I've answered, I've sent thanks to them as well. But really, on air, I'd really like to thank you. You're a great, great support to us. Over to you, Kurt. Thank you so much, Viv, and thank you to everyone who... who Put money into this program and into the station. Um, I know that it's 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 easy to feel helpless in the face of uh, such immense and catastrophic force as global climate change, but I think the way to feel empowered is to is to act. And a very practical way to do this is to make a donation to Wires. Um, if you haven't heard about the terrific organisations that, that that Wires is and the the work they do for our native creatures. Um, they are the WIRES stands for Australian Wildlife uh, Rescue Organisation, um, which might sound terrifically well funded, but I can assure you it's not. Uh, they're the front line, the people who get the call when there is an animal injured, and their stats speak for themselves. In the last 18 months, WIRES have helped more than 2,500 animals from the following threatened species powerful owls, grey headed flying foxes, squirrel gliders, koalas, which we heard about on the program. Spotted tail quolls, eastern pygmy possums, mountain pygmy possums, about which we heard a little bit as well. And I can speak from experience as to the tenacity and dedication of their um, 2,500 volunteers. As my, my, my mother, my own mother, is one, and she gets called out at all times of the night uh, to pick up some stranded possum from the roadside. <laughs> she nurses them back to health, then releases them back into the wild, releases them back into the wild. Uh, to make a one-off uh, or regular donation, please head to wires.org.au. And there's really no quicker way to directly help the lives of Australian wildlife. Um, so, so please join us uh, next week for the EcoCity Summit with Vanessa Petrie in the studio. Then, as Vivian mentioned, on the 17th of July, the second part of our creature feature, this time focusing on solutions. Uh, so thank you very much for tuning in, and um, we'll see you next week. I think we might have time to listen to the Pippi Stroll bat again. Um, Andy, if you could play the one with the uh, the speaker before it. And just before we go, listeners, there's one more thing. Uh, Save Albert Park is having a holiday for a little time, for a few months. And so the next program, you must stay tuned for it, is the Stop Adani Roadshow in Canberra. And we'll hear there... Uh, in that, we'll hear talks from Auntie Matilda from the Aboriginal Tent Embassy and Millie Telford from Seed. So good night, everybody. Thanks for listening. And here's the little bit more about the Pipistrelle bat in Christmas Island.
And so it was this really sad moment, and, and I carry around the recording of the last bat on the last night, which is the sound I'm going to play now. a little pipistrelle bat where was it a christmas island pipistrelle so on christmas island beyond zero emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organization we design blueprints for a zero emissions economy as climate change action becomes an emergency leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel based economy with its climate changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings, and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.